You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And I'm Stephanie. In this episode, we will be discussing episode seven of Orphan Black, the next chapter, which is called What a Living World Will Demand. We will discuss everything that happened in that episode, but there shouldn't be any spoilers for future episodes. And pandemic disclaimer, we are recording this in August of 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic is still a thing, and we are still a mess, and probably increasingly a mess. If you are listening to these uh, in quick succession, you will hear our descent into madness. Uh, if you are listening to this episode in the future, please, please forgive us. If you're listening to it now, please forgive us also. It's tough right now. Delta variant woes. So the episode title reference for this episode all of the episodes this season have come from either Parable of the Talents or Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. This title reference this title reference comes from Parable of the Talents, and it is actually from the book within the book called The Book of the Living. This is verse 21 of The Book of the Living, and it, the verse is entitled, What a Living World Will Demand. And the verse itself is, There is no end to what a living world will demand of you. So... You know, I feel a fairly a fairly good choice for this particular episode, given the microscope that is now being placed upon so many Leda clones over the globe. So this episode was like a chonky episode, Chris. This episode was <laughs> Is huge. that a scientific term? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was huge. There was a lot of stuff going on. There there was. And it's one of those I mean, this is me jumping way ahead, maybe, but uh I, I remembered in re-listening to it, like, how nervous I got at the end of this one. Like, it just, it made me anxious. Well, we have Kira in peril at the end of this. That always makes me anxious. Exactly. I feel like a big piece of this episode is, which obviously is following up from the last episode, is seeing what is the fallout from being exposed as clones for people in our in our group and we we start the episode with that hindsight report which i th- i thought was kind of interesting i like that we got a few more names of lita clones and and locations through the report I, it was kind of like both terrifying and fun at the same time <laughs> if that yes. makes sense yes it does make sense because i agree with you it is one of those i i kept thinking like it is kind of fun to get like little little glimpses at other clones. But yeah, it is it is fun. And also, I don't know, I guess it's just sort of interesting to me to hear what various writers come up with as uh, visions of alternate clones, I guess. As they were going down the list of clones. <laughs> I feel so... <laughs> I feel like such a stereotype, but they mentioned one other clone who lived in Canada who was like a gym teacher. I was like, oh, I bet she's queer. (laughs) (laughs) But that's like our second clone who kind of is a a athletic, I guess kind of third, because uh, Allison got her degree in kinesiology. And then we had Jennifer, who was a swimming coach. She was some sort of coach. Mm -hmm. And then this clone in Canada, whose name I'm not remembering at the moment, uh, who teaches gym so maybe a little little common thread a little bit between some leaders wasn't there also like a, a tattooed barista in portland yes. or something <laughs> named ann gentleman i thought that was a great name <laughs> <sighs> and did kind of make me wonder if it was 
an obscure, it's probably just me, my brain works too hard, reference to the show Gentleman Jack, since Ann Lister is the focus of that show, but that's probably reaching. <laughs> hmm. But anyway, good name, Ann Gentleman. I liked it. <laughs> and of course, we cannot fail to mention the return of a particular clone, a particularly beloved, fun clone. Whenever I, I heard the words nail salon in the report, my immediate reaction was, uh-oh. <laughs> what is going uh -oh to happen or next? Yay. <laughs> it was an uh-oh. <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like with Crystal, you never know what you're going to get. She has been very helpful in the past, but she's also caused trouble in the past. So I just, you know, it was, it was definitely an uh-oh. That was my reaction. Crystal is a chaos agent. It's true. In a similar but also completely different way that, that Helena is a chaos agent. I was just thinking that, yes. <laughs> but it, it feels like maybe even more so than Helena. Yeah. Just because it, it could go in so many different directions. You're never really sure. Because at least with Helena, there's a certain Vi consistency violence. there. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be violent. <laughs> probably. Probably. <laughs> she's she's going to be a precious murder angel one way or another. <laughs> You can at least count on Helena nowadays to, like, protect you, but there's going to probably be violence. With Crystal, you just don't know. <laughs> you just don't know. Probably not going to be violence with Crystal, though there could be. I think she did learn some judo or something, didn't she? I recall seeing her, like, working out at a gym. I think that's right. Yeah, so maybe violence, though probably not as quite as skilled as Helena's violence. But it's on the table. <laughs> didn't, didn't she pull some self-defense moves out at some point? Am I misremembering that? No, I think she did. I think she did. She pepper sprayed poor Felix. I remember that. Mm. See? You're just never sure. As Crystal says in this interview, there is only one of her. <laughs> maybe that is for the best. <laughs> I was going to say. I was going to say. Thank goodness. <laughs> and I, I love that Crystal went to law school. Like, I think that's an awesome step in her journey. It is, but it is also puzzling. <laughs> But she got really into activism with the makeup industry. So it's, I kind of get it. I wonder what, what her professors think. <laughs> I feel like they're, they're evoking maybe a little like Elle Woods vibe with Crystal going to law school. I was also just thinking about that too. I feel like you and I are on the same brainwave here. So less fun in the hindsight report was the, description of the violence faced by a clone in i think it was rio de janeiro and that section of the report mentions a new organization which i feel like we should expect to hear about again in the future called 46 pure which went hard with some some uh, their naturalistic fallacy arguments about clones not being a, an appropriate thing because they are against nature or they're not natural which whatever that's not relevant but okay when the whole thing, they talked to a spokesperson or whatever, and they were like, we don't condone the extremist action, but also they don't punish it. I'm like, it irks me. It's like, I'm, I'm side-eyeing you with your, like, oh, we don't condone that, but also it's fine. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> it feels like that's a sentiment that has been expressed by groups in the news who maybe have a organization that kind of like interacts with government and, and things like that but then people who adhere to their values some of them are a bit more violent and it 
I just feel like it's a sentiment I hear quite a bit in the news, and it feels like a cop-out. Yes, that is uh, what I am trying to get at, without stating it as directly as you did. It's uh, frustrating. Looking to members of Clone Club, and I guess slightly outside of Clone Club at the moment, we had some reactions to the public outing from Sarah, Allison, Vivi, Kira, and Delphine, which I thought was was kind of interesting to look at next to each other. It felt like Sarah's reaction and Allison's reaction to me echoed similar sentiments of feeling as though this new wave of attention and stress in their lives was maybe like undoing some of the really hard work that they have been doing over these years to kind of deal with their mental health issues. And I mean, that totally makes sense to me, right? Because they were part of the original clone club who had gone through all of this horrible, horrible stuff and, you know, all the trauma. And it seemed like Vivi's reaction was maybe a little bit similar in that, like, you know, Sarah takes a beer out of the fridge and takes some THC truffles to try to, it seemed to me at least, like she was trying to ward off a panic attack, which, fair. And, you know, Allison kind of like worrying about maintaining her sobriety. And then Vivi, less dramatically, you know, is like chugging some rum she found in her rental. So like kind of turning to some sort of escapism or wanting to turn to some kind of escapism to having a bit of this uh, identity crisis, I guess. It feels like it feels like Vivi in particular, because this is kind of new to her, she really seemed the most in the midst of, who am I really? Did I make the right decisions in my life? If Could I have been these examples of myself that I've met? I kind of feel like Vivi's reaction is maybe more similar to how our clone club might have reacted when they found out that they were clones. Absolutely. As it is, you know, a slightly newer thing, even though it wasn't actually new, because, like, Vivi knew, and then they convinced her that she didn't know, and it was a whole, it was a whole other journey there. But, yeah, that versus, like, Allison and Sarah knowing that they're clones, and knowing that all these other clones are out there, but also essentially living in fear of this exact situation. So, yeah, their reactions are a lot more... They've been through this before, and so they're anticipating, like, how bad it could get. Whereas Vivi, you're right, like, she's more back where they were 10 or so years ago when, you know, before they knew about Dyad and all of that stuff. But Vivi's got this extra layer of, you know, since she's a CIA operative, now her face is all over the news. Like, has that put her in danger because now she can't be the anonymous person that she should be in order to do her job correctly. I still have so many questions about why they thought, hey, let's take a person with the same face as 200 some odd other people <laughs> and uh, make them a secret agent. Yeah, I feel like we need more information on that. Was that an intentional thing? Or did the people who hired her on as an operative didn't know? That seems unlikely, but... I feel like I, I need more information. But it seems like they recruited her from the Bro- the Boston Project. I thought that they pulled her out before she was recruited. No? I don't know. That's fair. I don't actually know. Okay. 
I, I agree with you, though. I feel like it's unlikely they didn't know that she was part of that cohort. But I, I want more information about that decision. Because you're right. It seems not the greatest idea. It's It's questionable at best. I thought it was interesting because we got Kira's reaction to, and she was part of why this has all happened, and we got kind of her reaction to all of this news finally being out there. And it seemed like it was this combination of kind of excited, like, hey, we I finally did this thing that I thought was a thing that we should do. But she also said she felt scared. And I feel like those are both valid reactions. <laughs> I'm super curious, though, what Charlotte is thinking, because in this episode, she's pretty out of it. Mm -hmm. So even though she might remember that she gave Kira the okay to do this, we don't get to see from Charlotte's perspective, you know, what she thinks about what's going on right now. I do also wonder if Kira's reaction might have been different if she had actually been with her mom and the other clones. Do you think it might have been, it might have leaned more toward the feeling scared side or I wouldn't think so. I mean, I'd think yeah. and and maybe, you know, guiltier. Mm, yeah. Since she would be seeing them directly freaking out. We did finally get to quote unquote see Helena in this episode and she's she's heading back to Toronto to be with her sestras in this dark time. And that made me really happy. But it also was weird picturing Helena driving for some reason. This is true. I was like, does she have, does she have a minivan? Like, what, <laughs> what kind of vehicle? What kind of vehicle does Helena drive? I mean, she drove like a motorcycle back in season one, I remember. But I'm trying to think, like, an adult Helena with two children, like, what vehicle does she drive? I'm immediately thinking, like, one of those big old truck that a hunter would have. Didn't Jesse have a big truck like that? That's probably why I'm picturing it. Because we've seen her in one of those before. And I'm like, yeah, that, that feels right to me. <laughs> or or like an old suburban type car, the way that Mrs. What you, Mrs. S used to have. Oh, yeah, maybe. That feels right. It feels like she would want something practical. Like it would have to be, she'd need to be able to like haul a body or something in it. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. As well as... As well as tote her children places. <laughs> like <laughs> Something with off-road capabilities. Yes. Thank you for indulging me in thinking about <laughs> what kind of car Helena would drive. <laughs> I didn't even question it. I'm just like, yes, let's talk about this. <laughs> I also have thoughts. <sighs> but yes, I, I cannot tell you how happy it made me to hear Helena's voice. <laughs> Which feels like a ridiculous thing to say, but it was comforting to me for some reason. It also made me very happy to hear Crystal's voice. Yes, yes. And again, I love that it's it's Tatiana who is reading it. So it is her actual voice, like these characters' actual voice rather than another actor doing the voices. I just, I, I love that we get to hear her read these characters again. It would not be the same if it was somebody else. We also got in this episode a little visit with three of kind of like our... They're probably our, some of our big bads for this series. Like, maybe we're still on the fence about one of them, but the other two, we're pretty sure they're big bads. So we've got, we've got Eloise Thibault, who... Maybe we're still on the fence with her, but she seems pretty shady in this episode. So I feel like 
we can we can throw her in here with the big bads. She does sound super shady. It's it's one of those like you're right. Like we don't know exactly what she's referencing, so it could theoretically not be a terrible thing, but it is it is very very suspicious. And especially since she's talking about like trying to push through things and whatever, which just always seems uh suspicious. I feel like I just said suspicious a lot, but she's real suspicious, so. <laughs> but what are the projects she's trying to, like, push through while people are distracted with the news? And it sounds like she was maybe glad of the idea that the biothreat committee could be dissolved. So that's, again, suspicious. Like, what? what is she up to? I don't like it. And speaking of other people I don't like, this guy Davis. <laughs> what an unhappy, unpleasant man. I dislike him immensely. It's almost like they want us to. <laughs> almost. I mean, I'm not sure. But he's rude to his wife. And he's just, he hates clones for some reason. I guess because they weren't his, like, ticket to fancy stuff at the CIA. But I, I dislike him immensely. I mean, he 100% talks about them like they're not human beings. Yes. He definitely has a lab rat's attitude toward them. Exactly. So, of course, we being part of fandom clone club uh hate him immediately good job writers <laughs> that is the way to do it and he reveals to us in this episode that he's the link to sturgis and he seems to know that sturgis has been killed but i don't necessarily think he was involved with it i don't know what did you think about his comment about sturgis being killed I honestly just don't know. I couldn't decide if it was insinuating that the CAA maybe had something to do with his death or just it was a completely different entity that had something to do with Sturgis's death. It was very ambiguous. Yeah, this is one of those things that, like, they keep giving us pieces. <laughs> We're scrambling to figure out how they fit. I also thought it was interesting that they referred to Dana and her cohort of clones as like the Boston Project rather than the Gemini Project because that was the name we'd seen in Sturgis's files. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten already. It's been a while since we recorded that episode. <laughs> it has been. Stuff happened. I hurt my foot. Stuff has happened. <laughs> I also hurt my foot recently, but we'll talk about that later. Oh. Um, <laughs> not as badly as you, poor thing. Oh. Yeah. Again, this whole him talking about the the Boston project, which he's apparently not quite in charge of, but he's maybe like second in command of. But also he hates it and he hates them. <laughs> and he keeps wanting to repurpose them. Ugh. <laughs> you can quote me on that. And Dana also gives us a little more background because it comes up in a conversation with Arun and, and Allison, they mentioned Vivi's name, and that kind of like tickles something in Dana's memory. And she mentions that Vivi was sent away from the other clones because she was a problem child. She was maybe too aggressive, or at least that's what Dana thought at the time. So we did get a little bit more of a possible explanation as to why Vivi had been separated from the rest of the Project Gemini, the, the Boston Project clones. And then finally, on our list of big bads, we have Dr. Bai who mysteriously appeared at a lab at 4 a.m. talking about the data breach with somebody mysterious on the phone. <laughs> Not 
suspicious at all. And it was interesting to hearing Kira's observations about all of this, where, you know, Dr. Bai, who had always seemed like this very, like, calm and mentor figure, and he's suddenly gotten none of that going on, and he's just, like, angry and yelling at people. Which, on one on one hand, makes sense, because, like, this horrible thing had happened, but also all that other stuff that he'd said suddenly doesn't make any sense with the things that are happening now. So, yes, super suspicious, probably a bad guy. Probably. So, I thought that Kira and M made a very cute pair when they decided to team up and follow Dr. Bai after overhearing the suspicious uh, phone call. However, Kira seems to have learned sneaky tactics from Allison rather than Helena. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the description of when they lost him in traffic and like pulled up next to him. And then M like nearly like drove them into a rail like trying to get away. <laughs> like, Kira Aw. like spit chocolate milk on the window. <laughs> <sighs> you adorable nerds. <laughs> They were really cute. And I thought it was uh, cute the way that M kind of told Kira that she had figured out she was living at the at the lab. But I did have a question, Chris, because you know more about Harry Potter than I do. This is true. Confessing on the podcast, I have never seen a Harry Potter movie or read a Harry Potter book. Please do not dislike me because of these things. So I, I usually can kind of work my way through some Harry Potter references, but I didn't understand this one. Because when M finds Kira in the bathroom... And is like, I know you've been living here. Kira says something about, well, that explains all the Harry Potter cupboard jokes. Can you explain that to me? Yes. Okay. Before going to Hogwarts, do you, do you know Hogwarts? Yes. <laughs> I'm just asking. People might not know. I don't know. I don't know how, uh, how strongly you avoid it. Okay. So yes, when Harry is not at the school, so like before going there and then also when they're sent home in between um, semesters. He lives with his aunt and uncle and cousin. And his room is the cupboard under the stairs. Oh, Yeah, exactly. That kind of makes me sad. It's supposed to. <laughs> that, is, that is the goal. Okay. Accomplished. So yes, uh, somewhat similar to, to Kira then living in what is essentially a storage area. Poor Kira, beating herself up, saying she should have peed in a cup. Like, no, Kira. <laughs> that is that is not the lesson to take away no. from this. <laughs> so Kira and M, they, they end up following Dr. Bai, and he takes us to the Nazguinan community, which we had heard talk about before, primarily through the, the Biothreat Committee, talking about them being separatist terrorists. And I kind of thought this might be an interesting place to talk about why Dr. Bai and the Gene Keep project, if they were a legitimate project, which it's seeming like maybe they weren't, but why a legitimate sort of like genetics project would be interested in a community like the Nesguinig community. I've been trying to find like something sciencey that maybe I could like explain a little bit more in every episode. So I thought I could talk about genetic drift here. Is this because we've specifically gotten gotten listener feedback being like, hey, I love Stephanie's science corner. <laughs> I mean, maybe. But <laughs> so let's talk about genetic drift. Ha ha. Are you familiar with this idea, Chris? Vaguely. Most of the time when people talk about evolution, we think a lot about natural selection. So that's the process by which 
Some organisms tend to survive and reproduce because they have more favorable traits that suit them better to their environment. So that's natural selection. But the other piece of evolution that causes our genetics to change over time is something called genetic drift. And so this is changes in the frequencies of particular gene alleles within a population and how they change over time by chance. So just in case the word allele is maybe tripping up a little bit, an allele is basically just a version of a gene. So if you want to think about blood types, so the gene that encodes for blood types, there are three different alleles that you talk about in biology when you talk about blood type. You talk about your A allele, your B allele, and your O allele. And those are just the different types of that gene. And then each person is going to have two copies of that gene. So they'll have two different alleles for blood type. And then the combination of those two alleles ultimately determines what their blood type is. So genetic drift is looking at how the percentage of people who have those different alleles in a population can change over time just by chance. And the by chance often just has to do with reproduction, right? Because you have two copies of your of each gene, and when you reproduce, you pass one copy on to your offspring, and you just don't know which copy is going to get passed along to your offspring. So like, for example, my mom had AB blood, and my dad had A blood. So my mom, I know for sure, had an A and a B allele for her blood type, and then my dad had an A, and he might have had an A, might have had an O, I'm not sure. And so when they reproduced and they had me, you know, if my dad had passed along a O allele and my mom had passed along a B allele, I could have had B blood. But instead, I ended up with AB blood. So, and that was just by chance. Now, I am just one person, but if you look at the different alleles that get passed down to offspring on a larger scale, just by chance you could have, if we're talking about blood types, for example, you could have fewer people passing along a B allele and more people passing along an A allele. And then over time, more people in the population have A blood and fewer people have B blood. So that's the basic idea of genetic drift, just the idea of how the number of people who have different gene alleles in a population can shift over time just by random chance, random sampling that occurs during reproduction. But there are also two phenomena that are included under the umbrella of genetic drift that I thought I would talk about because they are applicable to this community at Nesguinig. So the first phenomenon is something called the bottleneck effect. And this is when some sort of event causes a population to shrink very drastically. So this could be something like a natural disaster or infectious disease, something like that. So if you think about it, you know, that shrinking, that sudden shrinking of a population can really affect your gene pool depending on who survives the event that caused a large loss of population. So like, for example, say that we're just to be easy, we're looking at a population of 100 people and two people of those 100 are carriers for the genetic disease cystic fibrosis. Well, in that population of 100, only 2% of the people there are carous for cystic fibrosis. However, let's say that that population of 100 goes through the bottleneck effect, something happens, and suddenly we're looking at a population of 10 people. And by chance, 
those two people who are carriers of cystic fibrosis are part of the 10 that survive. Now, suddenly, it's not 2% of the population that are carriers for cystic fibrosis. It's 20% of the population are carriers for cystic fibrosis. That means it's a high likelihood that that new population going forward is going to have a higher instance of people either being carriers or having cystic fibrosis than that original population of 100 would. So that's the bottleneck effect. The other phenomenon is called the founder's effect. And so this idea is where the, the genetics of the founders of a population can have a very strong effect on the long-term genetics of that population. I actually have a real-life example of the founder's effect. So in a Amish population in eastern Pennsylvania, there is a syndrome called Ellis Van Creveld syndrome, which is much more prevalent in that population than the rest of the United States. So that particular community can trace its ancestry back to a founding group of around 200 individuals, and it's thought that only one couple out of that original 200 carried that recessive allele for Ellis Van Creveld syndrome. But because that was two people, conceivably, out of 200 people, and that Amish community has remained relatively reproductively isolated from the rest of the United States, there weren't more people coming in from outside of the community who did not carry the recessive allele for that syndrome, and therefore the prevalence of those recessive alleles just concentrated in the population over time, which has caused that syndrome to become a lot more common within that Amish community compared to the rest of the United States. Bringing all this back to Orphan Black, the next chapter, when I heard the description of the Nazguina community, I was reminded of these two phenomenon. So the description they gave us was formed in the 1700s by French traders fleeing the British military's violent expulsion. The settlement got the name Nazguinig or torn in half from people native to the area because it sat on a peninsula that looked like a spear cutting a river in two. The small battalion of angry exiles that fled to the area had escaped deportation and death, but not the harsh winters and influenza that stripped them of their tenacity and numbers. The few that clung to life eventually built permanent log cabins, and many of the current residents were direct descendants of those people. So this community has both things going on. We have a we have a small founding population, so that would be a key determination of this community's gene pool. And then we also had a bottleneck effect of the harsh winters and influenza that caused the population to shrink. And the community has remained relatively isolated from the rest of Canada. So Nazguina would be particularly interesting to geneticists because they've undergone those two extreme examples of genetic drift. In sequencing their DNA, they could discover some really interesting things about the different genetic traits that are prevalent or maybe even absent in the population because of the genetic drift that has occurred there. And sometimes if there are conditions that are really prevalent or really absent in communities, that can help researchers learn more about what could be maybe protective genetic traits against particular diseases, what could be risk factors in our genetics for particular diseases, and that information can help develop treatments and diagnostics for diseases. So there could be a lot of interesting information that geneticists could learn, legitimate geneticists could learn from looking at the genetic material from this particular community. 
I actually learned when I was started doing some a little more research for this podcast that Finland is kind of considered to be a genetically isolated community. At least portions of its population are fairly genetically isolated. And so the Finnish people are actually of real interest to scientists right now. There's a project going on right now called the FinGen study, which is combining genomic information with digital healthcare data. And they're trying to use this genetic information in order to identify new therapeutic targets for diseases, for treating diseases, as well as diagnostic techniques for treating diseases. And something, there's several things, but something in particular that makes the Finnish population very interesting is their extremely low rate of cystic fibrosis within the community. I was looking at a list of the prevalence of cystic fibrosis in Europe, and most of the countries have somewhere around like one in every 3,500 births, something like that. Finland's is one in every 25,000. So they have a much lower incidence of cystic fibrosis in their population compared to the rest of Europe. And so that's really interesting for researchers. I know that was a lot. Did that make sense, Chris? <laughs> it did. It did. I think it's really interesting. Hopefully other people think it's interesting too, because I just talked about it for like 10 minutes, I think. But <laughs> I mean, it is interesting. It's interesting and it's relevant. So uh, you, you go, Stephanie. Do your thing. It was interesting to me getting a glimpse into this community, which we've kind of just heard about from outsiders prior to this, because the outsiders kind of made them sound like a very united, separatist community, but it doesn't seem like necessarily the entire village is as separatist maybe as Solfter is. He, he and that woman in the bar get into quite an argument about his attitude toward outsiders. But also, he's the mayor, right? <laughs> I'm just saying, apparently enough people agree with him enough to make him their leader, so... Yes, true. So, like, sure, not everybody, but uh, enough. So, Kira gets this brilliant idea that perhaps Softer was able to plant a computer virus in the DNA sample that they he gave to GeneKeep, which... I'm not saying is impossible. I think it's clear that that's quite likely based on the plans that we saw Sturgis had when Kasima searched his apartment. Mm -hmm. But it does make me wonder, how would he do that? If it were me, if I came up with that idea, if I even thought that was possible, you know, I feel like I'd be the gnomes from South Park. You know, I'd be like, oh, collect underpants. Step two, eh. Step three, profit. Like, I would have no idea how to get from... <laughs> idea to my end goal like so it seems like he would maybe need some help from somebody outside of Nesguineg to make that happen is that just me i'm still stuck on that reference because it was like a foreign language to me i have no idea what you were talking about <laughs> <laughs> my sweetheart likes south park and she references the south park gnomes quite a bit so i apologize <laughs> it's fine i'm just very lost <laughs> I've had a, I've had a long day. <laughs> but no, I I agree with you. It is uh puzzling how he would have been able to do that. It is orphan black, so it's not out of the realm of possibility, of course, because there've been like cheek worms and things. So I'm like, sure. Sure you've encoded your DNA to uh have have a, a computer virus in it. Of course. <laughs> 
this might be a stretch, but because, because they also bring up again Sovter's objections to the GMO salmon that were put in their watershed. And when in the hindsight report, when they were talking about 46 pure, they listed their statement as like objecting to genetic modification of any organism, yada, yada, yada. So it seems like maybe Sovter might have some similar sentiments to 46 pure. Is it possible maybe that organization kind of helped him come up with this plot? I don't know. It's a leap, but it did occur to me. But wouldn't you think they would object to that also? Because, <laughs> like, wouldn't wouldn't that be <laughs> the, the thing they're complaining about? But maybe it was for the greater good. Maybe they'd be into it. I don't know. Again, I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily reasonable, but I did have that thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are just too many players at this point. It's like I'm not entirely sure who's aligned with who. And then there were all sorts of bugs. <laughs> there were. And so what was with all the dead dragonflies that Kira found around Softer's house? And then, of course, what the heck is with that swarm of mosquitoes that was attacking him? And there was a dude inside of his house. So, like, what is going on with this guy? Too many things is the answer. Too many things. I did respect that when Kira contemplated taking a hair sample that M was like, no, it's an unsolicited sample. It wouldn't be right. It's like you've broken into a man's house. And yet <laughs> your, your, your ethics keep you from taking an unsolicited DNA sample. Like, okay. Well, the thing that gets me is like, I don't, I, I personally don't understand how scouring his drains and beard clippings and things is not an unsolicited sample. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's true. Technically, that might be considered discarded DNA, but it would have to be outside of his residence, really, for it to be discarded. At least I think, anyway, I'm not a legal expert in the matters of discarded DNA in Canada in particular. I mean, I, I do understand that it is technically different than, like, taking it from his body directly, but that also... Would, that could be an assault, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes, this is true. See, I think that's... This, as a distinction, makes more sense to me than the whole unsolicited sample thing. That's Like, I recognize that probably there is, like, a definition where M is correct that this is and the other thing isn't, but, like, ethically to me, (laughs) I'm like, I I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, ethically. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) moving on. So speaking of hair, that is not me making a segue to talking about Delphine. Jay goes and confronts Art, and he he kind of recruits her. She kind of recruits him to work on this weird clue that Kasima dropped as she was being dragged out of Jay's custody. I don't know. What do you think about Art kind of inducting Jay into Clone Club? Do you do you think she will be a, a good ally? I mean, I trust Art, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> and she seemed to kind of have the hots for Art a little bit, so... Which is valid, Jay. Her judgment seems sound, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But she's such a rule follower. I just, you know, Clone Club has to break a lot of rules. This is true. I'd be terrible in Clone Club, by the way. (laughs) Terrible. 
I'd be the worst clone. I'd be useless. They couldn't tell me anything. I, I was thinking about this earlier. Like, are there any rule followers in Clone Club? Because I don't think there are. No, I don't think so. Maybe Allison sometimes, but... <laughs> no, no, because I also briefly had that thought, but then I thought about literally everything she's done. And no, <laughs> no, she's one of those people who probably uh, thinks of herself as a rule follower, but is not. <laughs> I feel like Allison, Allison would, I guess, would be the one who would object, but ultimately not do anything to stop the plan from going forward. Be like, but this is wrong. Here, I will help you. Like, <laughs> like she knows what all the rules are, but she's certainly not following them. Yeah. She'll be mildly scandalized by other people's behavior briefly. But when it comes to <laughs> her then own do something actions. Worse. <laughs> yes. I was gonna say, when it comes to her own actions, anything goes. But in this little plot thread, we also got a appearance of a of an old friend we had felix and colin helping them break into the morgue it was good to have felix around again and his leather pants <laughs> i loved the spelling that they used for the sound it was making it was squeech 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 s q u e e c h squeech sure sure <laughs> that's the thing that gets me too is you know Felix is trying to justify the leather pants with, you know, well, one must wear black when breaking and entering. <laughs> I'm like, but, but they're so noisy, Felix. <laughs> I would think, I would think, uh, silence would be more important than, than shade, but, but I suppose they did make clear that it wasn't really about wearing black. It wasn't, it wasn't about stealth. <laughs> it was a very Felix entry into the story though because like he was he's was, he's breaking in somewhere he was wearing leather pants and he was kind of begrudgingly cooperating with somebody he thinks they shouldn't trust so it was it was very felix like kind of looking out for the clones but doing this thing even though he thinks i don't know that this is a great idea cooperating with this person who arrested kasima and trying to draw colin's attention to his bum <laughs> the most important number on the list I, you're right i Shame of me for forgetting to add it. <laughs> just just Felix all around. So they take the hair to Delphine, and Delphine's underwear makes an appearance this time, again. And <laughs> it was less embarrassing this time. Maybe le maybe less embarrassing than Art opening the door to Jay wearing his pizza pajamas? Or do we just think pizza pajamas and Art is adorable and not embarrassing at all? I think it's adorable and not embarrassing at all. And I don't understand why Delphine didn't just like grab a sweater or something. <laughs> she <laughs> has magical the underwear. Door in their underwear. <laughs> she was concerned about her wife. She was concerned about her wife. She thought it might be her wife. If you thought it might be your wife, you would open the door in the underwear in your underwear, maybe. I don't know. Not, not you, with but all like the one. TV cameras that have been around lately. <laughs> Come on, man. But I am curious. What data Sturgis's hair is going to contain? Because he had like some information about the project at his apartment that Kasima saw, but clearly this hair is going to have some inform. Is it going to be different information? I don't know. I'm just I am not really sure where this hair is going to lead us at this point. No, but I am. 
I am pleased with how the story brought together this story element with with Kira's story, where she was all like, hey, Auntie Delphine, <laughs> would it be possible to uh, encode information in DNA? And then Delphine's like, hold the phone. Hang on. This this applies directly to the thing I'm looking at right now. So we also learned in this episode that Sarah has been a forklift operator these past few years. And apparently she also has installed some sort of supersonic hearing device because she like heard <laughs> Delphine say Kara's name and she was running down those stairs. <laughs> I was like, how did she hear that? I was also... Um... A bit mystified by that. I think the first time I was listening to this, I had to, uh, or re-listening, I had to rewind it because I'm like, wait, did I miss something? <laughs> did someone summon her? <laughs> did Delphine shout Kira's name? <laughs> Just at the top of her lungs. Because Delphine is known for being a very loud speaker. No, that is not. <laughs> that's not how Delphine talks. Nope. Oh, so... I know this is totally me, Chris, but when, like, Delphine and Sarah were having that, like, argument toward the beginning of the episode, I was just, like, relishing the sexual tension. I know it's just <laughs> in my head. <laughs> I know it's just in my head, but, like, they just, they always had kind of a friction on the show. It was like, if Cosima wasn't a thing, if, like, Cosima was not a factor, if Delphine and Sarah, like, met, would they have, like a one-night stand and regret it the next day. I feel like they would have. <laughs> Ever since that kiss. <laughs> <sighs> so, no, you you, did, you weren't relishing the sexual tension at the same time? I, was. <laughs> I, I didn't even anticipate that that's where you were going to go. And I don't know, in, in retrospect, I don't know why I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was just marveling at Tatiana Maslany's ability to create sexual tension with herself. <laughs> I mean, given how many, uh, oh, what was it? What was the name of the the ship? There are there are actually multiple ships, I believe, aren't there? Oh yeah, there was. Let's see, there was Soccer Cop. Yes, right. Yes, Allison and Beth. Was it Rachel and Sarah? Rachel and Sarah, so Propunk, I believe, was the name. That sounds right, yeah. I'm dusting off my brain cells. Wow. <laughs> I haven't thought about these in a long time. I'm just saying, there there is a fandom precedent. Uh-huh. So what would a, what would a Sarah and, and Delphine ship be? I mean, maybe like Puppy Punk? Like, what would... I feel like I'm mixing genres there because we got Delphine, but then all of the clone ships had like, you know, clones with the different nicknames. I don't know. But Sarah and Delphine. Delora? Serphine? <laughs> they don't sound bad, but they're not great either. We should work on it. We'll work on it. <laughs> you, you will work on it. <laughs> I will laugh at you. <laughs> I mean, that's usually how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. We did it, Chris. We 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 talked about this chonky boy of an episode. <laughs> so much stuff. <laughs> I know we didn't really cover some of it, but I'm sure it'll come up in a future episode. This was a lot. It was. It, it was a lot, and it's a lot of heavy stuff too. Hence, all of our laughter. 
if you have any thoughts about this gigantic, huge, humongous episode, or any other episode, chonky episode, you can email us at feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com, and we are also on Twitter at TIE Podcast. Tatiana is Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. To find our other podcasts about Lost Girl and Killjoys, visit our website, askgenretv.com. And in this episode, Art's Pizza Print Pajamas were played by Tatiana Mazzani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>